The following podcast will contain discussion of sensitive topics that may be upsetting to some listeners. Please continue only as you are comfortable. This is a recording from the Arizona Child Sexual Abuse and Exploitation Prevention Coalition meeting held on October 27, 2022. Today, we are joined by Lizette Roeder of the Arizona Coalition to End Sexual and Domestic Violence. Lizette is a bilingual domestic violence response coordinator. In this role, she provides training and technical assistance to domestic violence responders and service providers. She is passionate about promoting primary prevention efforts in our communities and providing tools for youth to learn about healthy relationships. She has experience as an adult and youth victim advocate and has specific interest in the ways religion, philosophy, and pop culture impact communities. Today, Lizette discusses statewide primary and secondary domestic violence prevention and how to carefully support people affected by domestic violence in our own communities. Thank you so very much. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, this seems like a very fun meeting, so maybe I can join you all in the future. But when, uh, and uh, it's so funny, you said the last name the way that my husband says it because he pretends he wants to be French. Uh, it's uh, So my name is Lisette Roder. <laughs> but no worries, because a lot of people say Roder because it just sounds fancy, and I totally agree. And my pronouns are she, her, ella. And like I said, don't worry about it. Don't even be embarrassed because I get that a lot. So I'm here to talk about domestic violence prevention with the Arizona State Coalition and just some of the work that we do and some of the work that we will be doing in 2023, which we are looking forward to doing in collaboration with everyone in our communities. So just a little bit about me, um, as you heard from the bio, I have experience as a domestic violence advocate and a sexual violence advocate, but I have the unique position where I have worked in academia, um, in higher ed, and also for the government, I worked for the state Supreme Court for five and a half years. So I have seen domestic violence from every single angle, from an academic perspective, a legal perspective, and now with the state coalition. Um, doing nonprofit work. Some of my passion projects, so we all have passion projects at the coalition, but some of the projects that I spend a lot of time on is prevention work, uh, any work related to young adults and children, court-related work, so educating judges about domestic violence because they need a lot of it, and then anything that is influence of like what the media and pop culture and how that influences how young adults see relationships. So a little bit about the role of the state coalition. I see a lot of people from CPLC, so I know that a few of you are familiar with who we are, but for anyone who this is your first time hearing of us, Every state, and, uh, every state and territory in the United States has coalitions for sexual violence and domestic violence. So in some states like California, you have two separate coalitions, SACASA for sexual violence and then their domestic violence coalition. But in Arizona, we are a dual coalition, meaning that at ACSDVs, we um, do comprehensive response for every intersection of sexual violence and domestic violence. We're the 
the primary providers of training for both. So we do training for everyone, doctors, nurses, teachers, social workers, advocates, uh, Department of Child Safety, police officers, and any community member that's interested. And we also provide the best practices. So we do all the how-to policies, procedures for domestic violence and sexual violence programs to follow. Our mission is to dismantle oppression and to promote equity. So we are a small but mighty team. There are 24 of us and we are located statewide. So we at the coalition understand that we have to mirror the communities that we work with. So we have people that uh, are working from Tucson, from Flagstaff, from Holbrook. Um, so we are all over the place and we travel all over the place, even though we're a small and mighty team. It doesn't matter to us where you are, we will travel to you if you want training. We also have a state helpline. So we do have a helpline that is not a hotline. So helpline meaning we are open for business hours, nine to five, and you can actually text us as well. We can do one-time assistance when, with rent and mortgage payment, utilities, medical expenses, counseling, relocation costs, safety planning, and just overall be someone for a survivor to call and be believed be in a space where they can talk about the abuse that is happening or has happened. Uh, something that is not here, but I do want to point out is that we also help with pet related expenses. At the coalition, we love pets and we know that sometimes someone will not leave an abusive household or relationship because they cannot take their cat, dog, hamster, whatever their fur baby is with them. So at the coalition, we actually provide the funds that's going to include food, uh, boarding, veterinary expenses, and relocation costs, including anything that is related to taking a flight somewhere to relocate. All you have to do is call that helpline number and we can try and help. So we are here to talk about some of the prevention work that we do. So there is actually three different types of prevention work that the coalition focuses on. The first one is primary prevention. So it, that is trying to prevent domestic or sexual violence in our communities before it happens. For having uh, a community where everyone feels free to be their uh, authentic selves, regardless of their sexual identity, preference, uh, race, ethnic background, or educational level. That includes, you know, starting to talk about healthy relationships really, really early on in life. You know, how do you talk to toddlers or school-aged children about consent, about respect, about equity and equality? That is what primary prevention is. Then we have secondary prevention, and that is a majority of our work. And that is working with someone when the domestic or sexual violence is occurring or after it has occurred offering services, telling them that they are believed, letting them know that there is space for healing, providing tools for them to be able to start the healing process and also get some of that initial help, whether it be like um, forensic exam, if there's uh, sexual violence, or maybe get the right direction for a voucher for housing or um, just to get out into safety. And then there's tertiary privation. I'm sorry, mm, it's been a long day and this is my third uh, time facilitating. 
tertiary prevention, and that is empowering survivors and their families to continue to heal and to continue to be in a place that is safe for them, whether it's with their interactions at work or keeping safe from the person that was causing harm. But a lot of what we do and the way in which we do prevention work is through training and technical assistance. Now, technical assistance makes it sound like I'm going to tell you to turn off your computer and turn it back on again, but it has nothing to do with technology. So tech assistance means that we are experts in domestic and sexual violence. So if you are working with someone who is a victim, a survivor, and you don't know what to do, what to say, or where to refer them to, you can call us and we can give you all the tools. It means we also do all the training. So you don't have, so one of the misconceptions is that you have to be like a professional or a victim advocate to get training from training from us, but it's not true. Anyone can get training, uh, your church group, your Bible study, your book uh, club, uh, any agency can request a training. And so I wanted to give you some examples of the trainings that you can request, which will be free unless you're a very large organization and by then we'll do like a consulting rate. So some of the common trainings we could ask for are domestic violence 101, sexual violence 101, teen dating violence, domestic violence or sexual violence in LGBTQ plus communities, effects of domestic violence through the stages of development. So from birth to uh, young adulthood, understand um, domestic violence in later life, understanding orders of protection, safety planning, technology misuse because again technology is not the problem it's the bad people the harm doers using technology to cause problems and pets and domestic violence but you can always reach out and ask for a training specific to anything you can think of and we will make it happen and then we also have newsletters so here are some of the newsletters that i would highly recommend um, you sign up to get we have a public policy update because we do public policy work. It'll let you know some of the laws and propositions that are going to be on the ballot or will be on the floor and how you can help or what senators or politicians you can reach out to, um, to because we want to pass laws that are helpful for survivors, not harmful. The Immigration Committee newsletter that will give you like all the updates on uh, for undocumented or for mixed status families that you may be working with, or quarterly agency newsletter that'll just give you all the basic information on what the uh, coalition is working on. The Tech Corner, that one is specifically for um, to give tips and tricks on how to use technology safely if you are a survivor of sexual or domestic violence. And then the Ally Corner, which is my favorite, and that is meant for just to interrupt adultism, you know, to remember that youth are there and that we need to treat them with respect and equality. And just because they are younger than us does not mean that they don't have experiences and, world and knowledge about life and the world around them. So it's just, uh, we do everything from, and I'm gonna send it to Genesis so she can uh, show you, but we do everything from articles that would be helpful, podcasts, and we even have a section on like trending video, video games, music, and movies, because if you really wanna work with youth, then you should also be able to at least know what is currently trending. And then we have awareness campaigns. So one of the best ways that we can do prevention work is making people aware that there are awareness months and that their work can extend beyond them. 
But the awareness months that we uh, highlight at the coalition are February, which is Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month, April, Sexual Violence Awareness Month, May, Murder and Missing Indigenous Women and Children's Awareness Month, October, Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and throughout election years, we have campaigns about your right to vote and voting for um, people who are going to do work that's going to be beneficial for survivors and for our communities. And then there are colors, of course, that are corresponding to each month. So for teen dating violence, it's orange. April, uh, for sexual violence, it's teal. And for domestic violence, it's purple. And in May, for murdered and missing indigenous women, it's red. And then this is something exciting that I get to share for the first time in public outside of the agency, but we are working on having a youth advisory board. So we will be sending the announcement in uh, late January. We are looking for any young adult, so high school age all the way to 22, um, that would be uh, that would like to give us uh, feedback on trainings, which how we should be talking to young adults in our communities. You know what agencies should we be uh, collaborating with, and even do, even doing like art and uh, other like documents that we can give out to the community that we want them to work on. We don't want to be the ones telling them like, oh, what do you think about this? Or like, Where, what would you like to see? What would you like for other teens or young adults to be receiving when we go and do tabling events in the community? So applications will be out soon. And then from the Youth Advisory Board, we will have an opportunity for a small group of chosen teens or young adults to do a uh, put, uh, they're going to come together and put a conference together that will be open to the community. So lots of opportunities there. And then we also have internships. So if you are getting ready to head to college or if you're in college already, we have internships available to you. We're super flexible because you don't have to come into the office other than like maybe staff lunches or mandatory staff meetings. Uh, you are paid for mileage uh, if you are asked to table. We also waive the fees for the core trainings. So we have two trainings that we charge for at the coalition one for the domestic violence core advocacy training, one for sexual violence. And if you're an intern, you can go to, uh, through all the 40-hour trainings for free. And the length is based on what you're interested in. So right now, my domestic violence intern, Chanel, she um, doesn't have to do it for school. She's doing it because this is something that she's interested in because her mom is a survivor. And she's going to be with us for the entire school year. So it's super um, cool and interesting. If you're interested in interning, you can reach out to us. Uh, we'll give you the application, but it's very flexible and we take into consideration your areas of interest and then your school schedule as well. So why is prevention work important? You know, I'm telling you all about the work that we do, the type of prevention that is out there and also some of the ways in which you can get involved but we need to have a quick recap of why it is important that we are doing this work. It's because domestic violence is super misunderstood. You know, even for people that are professionals that maybe are in the medical field or law enforcement, there's still a lot of misunderstanding of what domestic violence is. And now, obviously we do work with sexual violence, but because it is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, I wanted to focus on domestic violence. 
At the coalition, we view domestic violence as an umbrella term under which we find different types of abuse that are all domestic violence. So like family violence, child abuse, elder abuse, teen dating violence, animal abuse, stalking, intimate partner sexual violence, and intimate partner violence. All of those are domestic violence. Did you know that? Did you know that every single one of those is considered domestic violence? Most people don't. And so a lot of people go without resources or without education or without support because they think it's just stalking or it's just elder abuse. But all of these are domestic violence. And we have a specific definition of domestic violence, which is a pattern of abusive or coercive behaviors in any intimate or familiar relationship used to gain and maintain power and control over another individual. Because we emphasize the fact that it can be any intimate or familiar relationship, right? A foster parent can be abusive. Adult children can be abusive to their elder parents. Uh, grandparents can be abusive. Siblings can be abusive. Friends or roommates can be abusive. So that is why we also need to understand and educate when we do prevention work that it's not just boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, 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 husband, husband, right? It can be any intimate relationship. Also, it's important because one in four women and one in 10 men will be victims of domestic violence, stalking and other types, anything under the umbrella that is going to cause harm, have them concerned for their safety and they're going to need services because of it. Also, nearly one in two Native American women and Alaskan Native women have experienced intimate partner violence in their lifetime. That is like a huge percentage. And then when it comes to the young adults, there are currently 1.5 million high school students that are in an abusive relationship or living in a household where there is domestic violence. Out of these 1.5 million, only one out of every 32 teenagers or young adults are actually going to tell an adult about the violence that they're experiencing or have experienced, which is like minuscule, right? It's, it's practically nothing. In addition to that, we currently have 1.5 1.57 million children living in households where there is domestic violence occurring. And then 30 to 50, 31 to 50% of transgender and gender non-conforming individuals will also experience intimate partner violence in their lifetime. And they have additional barriers because they could be, you know, they could be outed uh, if they are not out. They could be uh, shunned from the small LGBTQ community that they have, especially in rural areas, among other barriers. And then there were 102 people that were killed related to domestic violence homicides in 2020. 70 of those deaths were by guns. One of the questions that I get asked a lot is, did this number increase because of COVID? No. Sadly, Arizona averages 100 to 110 domestic violence fatalities every single year. Uh, the only thing that happened during COVID is the brutality of the attacks was more uh, was worse. So we had more people being injured and ending up in the emergency room. So who are the victims? Anyone. Anyone. And I can guarantee you that in the space that we share right now, there are survivors and victims right now, which is why I ask that everyone, you know, you be respectful and that we watch our language and we're sure that we're conveying support and not victim blaming, right? So it can be anyone regardless of race, gender, level of education. People could say like, oh, well, it's a poor people people problem. It's happening more in South Phoenix or, you know, in the West Valley. 
No, you know, uh, for example, majority of the phone calls that to our helpline come from Scottsdale and Chandler Gilbert, just to give you an example, right? So we need to really rethink the fact that there's like a specific victim. They're not easily recognized. I can't go to Target after we're done here and just start pointing out people like, you're a victim, you're a victim, right? Because there's not like universal traits. And even when they are injured, when it is physical, they've learned how to hide them. Think about it, because you've seen it in TV shows and music videos and cartoons, you know, the sunglasses, kicking on the foundation, using long sleeve during the summer or, you know, regardless if it's 115 outside. And they do this because they're often blamed or stigmatized because people don't want to ask how can we help or what can we do, but why don't you leave? Sadly, that is the question that they get the most. And it has a deep impact. And this is like a tiny list, believe me, uh, because I only have a, a, you know, a specific amount of time. But some of the things that can happen are physical and emotional injury, obviously, acute or chronic health problems. When we work with survivors, we often see that they have chronic headaches, chronic gastrointestinal issues, so a lot of like nausea, loss of appetite, diarrhea, uh, acid reflux, and so on, a lot of muscle tension from the constant stress and hypervigilance, behavioral health concerns, PTSD, anxiety, depression, PTSD being um, its own um, subject there, substance use, because we are going to have survivors of any age that are going to use, you know, drugs and alcohol to cope with the abuse that they're experiencing or have experienced, helplessness, anger or aggression, denial or minimization of the abuse, loss of income or damage to credit. Um, it is huge to have someone who's causing harm ruin your credit so that you don't leave. Loss of housing, fear or shame, love and attachment, and loss of life. Because even though you and I can get infuriated and ask ourselves, why don't they just leave? The reality is that they went into that relationship or are in that family expecting to be loved and accepted. And that's something we cannot just dismiss. Just remember that leaving is an event, not a process. Because even when they leave, that doesn't mean that someone is safe. Your fatal, uh, the, the risk of fatality, so the risk of you dying or being killed goes up by like 97% when you actually leave the abusive household. In addition to that, that's usually when stalking begins. So just because someone has managed to leave doesn't mean that they don't need our help. They still need our help and that's part of the prevention that we, work that we do is letting them know how we can help once they have left that abusive situation. And we need to, you know, so this is where like, what can we do, right? How can we help, uh, especially at an individual level? So we need to believe it's that simple because what we know from the neurobiology of trauma is that when people are believed, they automatically start take step take a step to healing. And when they are not believed, um, they are more likely not to report and like further, they might tell one person and if the person is like, are you sure that's what happened? Or are you telling the truth? Immediately things happen like shame, guilt, embarrassment, fear of retaliation, fear of being rejected by family members or uh, friends, concerns about confidentiality, fear of being bullied, um, fear, fear of being blamed, self-blame. They're going to start asking themselves, well, is it really what I think it is? Uh, receiving an initial negative reaction, 
financial dependence on the person causing harm. It could mean that um, they don't want to leave because they don't have money, right? Lack of knowledge uh, about the resources, distress and dislike of the police and, uh, and the justice system, and cultural language or barriers to obtaining help. So all of these things happen just because of one negative response, you know, which could even be like, well, you're undocumented, so you can't get help just to give you an example of something cultural or with a police or justice system. So the easiest thing we can do is just to say, I believe you and I'm sorry this is happening to you. You don't have to be an expert, but just that is already life-changing for the survivor. And there, like I said, simple ways that you can help. You don't have to be an advocate. You don't have to be a police officer. Uh, you don't have to be a judicial of a judge um, or a social worker. Uh, some things you can do, you can listen in a non-judgmental manner and remember that body language is also important. So if you're like, I believe you, but you look like, oh, I want out of this situation, it's still gonna have a negative effect. Affirm that they are not to blame, that nobody deserves to be hurt. Ask about a safety plan. You know, have you thought about ways to keep as safe as you can? Sometimes leaving is not an option, but they can still safety plan. So you don't know how to safety plan and you don't have to, right? But you can at least give them a number of somewhere where they can safety plan, like our helpline or the national hotline. Provide resources. So always have resources available, like even if it's just like, you know, the national hotline number. If you're a mandated reporter, uh, explain what that means and that you're going to have to make that report. And then explains what comes next if you know it. So some of us here are in the movement to end violence or in the medical field or maybe we're social workers, so that is for us. You know, do you know what comes next after they report or if, you know, they do have uh, DCS or police involvement? Just being able to say, you know, it'll be a long process, but there are going to be people who are going to help you every step of the way. That already makes a huge difference for their trauma response and for their ability to heal. And then, other things you can do, and no matter what age you are, is you can uh, donate. That is our, uh, you can uh, scan that code right there, that, and it'll take you to our website, to which you can actually make a donation of any amount. The donations are going to help, again, to relocation, to uh, emergency, um, for rental assistance, mortgage payments, medical assistance. It goes to our Survivor Emergency Relief Fund. But also on our website is a program wish list. We are the state coalition, so we have a record of everything that every single sexual and domestic violence program around the state is looking for, what they need donated. Because here's the thing, most people just want to donate what time of the year? The holidays, right? And maybe back to school. Okay, but people grow out of clothes, people run out of food. So think about doing uh, food drives or donation drives throughout the year. That is a great way which you can help. And when you do, keep in mind items for teenagers, because here's the thing, like people like to donate things for babies and little kids because toys are easy, baby clothes are easy. But what about the teens? We have a lot of young adults that are, you know, survivors themselves or secondary survivors. We need to help them as well. And then culturally specific items, you know, what about uh, hair care for, you know, a black survivor or for someone of, you know, who's um, South, South Asian descent? 
Do you have ingredients that are specific to their diet? Do you have stuff for people who uh, need kosher food, right? All of that is very important. I know I'm like short on time, but just to give you an example, when I was uh, a while ago, when I was a victim advocate, I was working with someone from Central America and she was so grateful for the help, but she was always sick to her stomach. So one day I asked if there was anything I could do. And she said, do you have black beans by any chance? I don't mean to sound ungrateful, but in South America, we don't do pinto refried beans like Mexican people do. And that's all that's ever given to us. I know it sounds so silly, but the fact that that was the reason she, she was forcing herself to eat it and making herself sick, like that is such a small thing that we could have done, like offer different types of beans or tortillas and rice and, you know, uh, cleaning products and hygiene products because not everyone uses the same, right? And like I said, just donate other times, not just during the holidays. And that will make a huge difference um, everywhere that you make a donation to. Keep learning. And we are never done learning, including myself. All of the trainings at the coalition are free. Like I said, it's very rare for us to charge. Some of them are in person, others are webinars. Um, the only, and then you can always reach out to us for specific trainings. Because like I said, everything's changing. It's a growing movement. Even the language that we use, like we don't use perpetrators or abusers. We use harm doers, right? So everything's constantly changing. If you do want a training, if you do want resources, because maybe you don't want a training, but maybe you want um, brochures and shoe cards that you can have at your agency, you can reach out to any one of us here, Sam, Lauren, um, it's a Sam twice, but that is uh, Andrea or myself, and we can make sure to send you anything you want for free. And then take care of yourself, because even like, if you have a friend or a neighbor or someone in your life that does feel safe with you and they disclose, that's going to be hard on you. And you're going to go home and still be thinking about it. Did I do enough? Did I do the right thing? Did I offer enough support? What's going to happen to them now? But the thing is, that's going to be beyond your control and you're more likely not going to be in the know. So because that's the case, take care of yourself. Make sure to practice self-care take a breather, go for a short walk, maybe listen to music, you know, I like to listen to heavy metal after very, very hard like sessions, because I don't just like K-pop, right? But whatever it is that you like, uh, just make sure that you're taking care of yourself, because you cannot pour from an empty cup. And I just wanted to leave you with some resources, because I feel like part of the biggest part of prevention is not for me to just go on and on and on, but actually tell you where to get additional information. So on the state side, we have the coalition. We have a resource list. So on our website, there's a, um, a resource list and it's a list of all the programs by county in the state and it gets updated quarterly. So you can go and download it. The Maricopa County DB line for emergency shelter. So if you are looking to go into shelter, that is the line that you would call, the phone number you would call, and the address confidentiality program. So if you have left and you're planning to move to a place where the person causing harm does not know about, you can join them and it can protect your uh, address and whereabouts. And then on the national site, we have the National DV Hotline. We have Safe and Together, and that is for all of the uh, professionals on the line here. Um, and then womenslaw.org and Love is Respect. 
Love is Respect is great if you're working with young adults. And womenslaw.org is written at a middle school level and just gives you like the basics of like what to expect to go to court, how to get a restraining order, order of protection, right? Um, and so on. And that is all that I have today. Um, just thank you again. I'm so excited to be here. It's so awesome. Any questions or comments? You mentioned uh, not using the word perpetrator or abuser anymore, and I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could explain that for some of us. Yeah, so the reason, um, so if you, we're trying to do more work with the people who cause harm, right? The people who are hurting others. And if I go to someone and I'm like, well, you as a perpetrator, they immediately get defensive and they stop listening. But when we say uh, people who cause harm, or if you've ever caused a person you love harm, they will still get defensive and they'll still offer excuses, but they don't like flip immediately and they're more likely to listen. So we're doing it because we want to hold people accountable and give them the space to be accountable. Because here's the thing, who has the biggest role in ending domestic violence? The people causing harm, right? So we can't do this work without bringing them to the table. And that's why we use that. That's not to say, however, that we don't use abuser. We do use the term abuser. Uh, perpetrator, not so much because we're not in criminal justice, but um, we understand everyone is going to say it differently, but we usually use harm doer or abuser. Talking about the hotlines, and you said something really interesting um, midway through your, I mean, all the way through, but but something that I um, hooked on to uh, midway through your presentation where you talked about, um, you know, people often think that these are like COVID numbers. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is with the upward um, tick and brutality that happened during mm -hmm. COVID, a lot of reports didn't come in because people were locked down, because they were in the house together, because um, even though you got high numbers, the doctors, like uh, we have um, some U of A nursing students with us today, you know, the doctors and, and, and nurses and teachers and all the people in your community that might have seen the black eye or the bruises or the hand marks on the arm and, and pulled you aside and said, are you okay? We're not having contact with people. We saw that in, in our children um, who weren't in school, not getting advocacy at child health. Um, and just so you guys know, when she said uh, child abuse is domestic violence and domestic violence is child abuse, that is so um, such a takeaway uh, from today because so, we get a lot of referral calls from the domestic violence hotline at the Child National Child Abuse Hotline because there's so many crossover issues. And any kid that's grown up in one of those houses knows uh, it's abuse. You suffer uh, even some of the brain chemistry of kids that are physically harmed just watching a parent be harmed. So uh, I just you know, honor the work you're doing. It's some of the toughest stuff. And you guys also get in the crossfire. So I was wondering, you mentioned a little bit about your self-care. Are there some ways that you guys formalize self-care in your work? Like you talked about some of like whether you're rocking out to heavy metal or watch an anime or whatnot. What, is, what are some ways that your industry formalizes it for teams? Yeah, so um, it really is going to depend on the agency, right? Uh, but the coalition holds spaces and meetings specifically for people just to vent, uh, as long as you know we're keeping the confidentiality, of course, uh, to ask for advice. 
Um, at the coalition, we are a four-day four workweek agency because we want to show other agencies it's possible uh, to self-care. Um, and then when we're working with the young adults, um, it's just providing them the opportunity to try self-care in different ways that are free, you know, like teaching them about yoga or breathing techniques, journaling. Um, and then when we do have funds, providing field trips to things that are going to help them. So like maybe first Fridays to go to art walks or to the museum, anything and everything really um, can be self-care, right? So it's just emphasizing that what works for one person is not gonna work for the other. So just because I like cat yoga does not mean cat yoga is gonna be for everyone. <laughs> so it's just, just it's a, uh, it's, I always tell people like, try something at least three times. And if by the third time it doesn't feel right, then okay, stop trying and try something new. But the point is to keep trying to find what is going to work for you. Yeah, thank you. Oh, and so I was gonna look um, at the chat. Okay, are there any volunteer opportunities for our youth? Yes, so you don't have to do internship. We also have volunteer um, opportunities. Both the internship and the volunteer applications are online and I can send that um, over to, to Genesis so that she can send it out. Um, and it's going to be depending on where you are too, because like I said, we don't have to necessarily do volunteer work with the coalition. We can to ask you where you're living and if you're like super close to a shelter or an agency like that's 10 minutes away, we can say, do you wanna volunteer there instead? It's about making connections and collaborating with our communities too. So just reach out and we will figure out a volunteer opportunity. If there are children present in the home where domestic violence is taking place, is there a different approach or protocol? Yes, well, if you are a mandated reporter, you will have to make that report, uh, but continue to provide support. Problem is that the child or the young adults might not ever want to see your face again. That's what they usually say, uh, but you just let them know, I understand that and I'm really sorry that it came to this, but I care for your safety. And I just want you to know that if you change your mind, I am here. And I'm telling you this because I've had to say that many times uh, as, a, as a youth advocate. And about a week or two in, they would text or call and say, I'm sorry, I do understand. I do wanna continue working with you. It's very rare that they're just, you know, ghost you forever. Um, but you do need to understand that you just reported something, right? Um, big and it's life changing for them. So just give them the space to digest, you know, to really think about what happened. Um, and it's going again to depend. Every single agency has different policies and procedures and so does DCS. So the Department of Child Safety, they, say that you have to make the report happen immediately, but immediately can mean different things. It can mean at the end of the day or at the end of the week. It just depends. It, uh, so you got to know what the uh, protocols are for where you work. Because um, so I used to work at an agency where it had to be at the end of the day. So if I came back at 9 p.m., at 9 p.m. is when we did it. But in other places, it's like at the end of the week, as long as it's you cause a report to be made, then you are meeting state statute. Thank you all so much. Like I said, I'm so happy to be here and um, I'm just so happy to be able to talk about prevention work.
instead of like just DB 101 and so on. It's just so cool. Um, please do reach out. Like I said, I would love to train and I would love to, or my colleagues can come and do trainings for you and we, we will make it happen. No matter where you are, we will drive to you or do Zoom, but ideally we would like to drive to you. Things in person are more fun. If you or anyone you know is in crisis, please reach out to Child Help at 1-800-422-4453. Child Help provides abused and neglected children with the resources necessary to access therapy, housing, education, and other family services. For an extensive list of resources, please visit peersolutions.org resources.